Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Joshua Jackson. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognizing and celebrating the people who keep this great country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organizations and to support them in the same way they support their staff every single day of the week. If you're in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, please go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Each week on this program, I'm joined by a different leadership figure from the world of business, education, politics, sports, or even from local communities in the aim of truly discovering who those people are that get up every morning and make this great country work. We get their take on their current economic and political landscape of the UK and discuss everything from supply chain headaches to rising house prices and, of course, the success and the innovation that makes it all worthwhile in the end. On today's programme, I'm delighted to be joined by Nelly Barova, Director at Art Division. Um, Nelly, welcome onto the show. Hello, Joshua. Thank you very much for inviting me. No, thank you ever so much for, for taking the, the time out of your day. I know, obviously, it's been a, uh, a whirlwind sort of 18 months um, you know, since, since COVID's kicked off. Uh, for many people, quite difficult. A lot of sort of challenges to navigate. And you know, yourself uh, working as a marketing firm within sort of property, probably no doubt very different, um, you know, rising, as I say, rising house prices and, um, you know, stamp duty holidays, a lot of, a lot of chaos, um, but, you know, quite positive. So how's everything been? Well, uh, the first word that comes to mind is interesting, challenging. Um, there's been a lot of change and you're absolutely right. So March last year, um, it's chaos. And I think uh, a lot of business owners, um, could, could kind of agree with me that, you know, a lot of us were not sure we, we will be in business and for how long. So, yeah, we, we went through um, a, a lot of panic. We were able to be, uh, sort of brainstorm what changes we need to introduce in the business. We all went working from home, like probably most people did, and we had to change our processes massively because we were all set up to work uh, in an office. All of a sudden, all of us had to communicate efficiently uh, through things like team, Microsoft Teams, um, introduce a new system with our tasks, how we allocate tasks, how we communicate between each other without wasting too much time. So within the first maybe two, three months, it was a um, big change for for all of us internally, obviously there was a massive fear that we will lose some of our clients as well, and uh, you know what that would mean from our business term. Luckily for us, uh, we didn't lose a single client. Um, in fact, uh, we we found that um, the changes that COVID brought meant that a lot of businesses within the property sector realised that marketing is is extremely important for them to stay in business. So um, since probably the summer of last year, we've been able to uh, attract uh, new customers as well. And um, 
I would say, you know, you put classes as a, as a positive story uh, as a result of all the changes we had to go through. And, you know, obviously it is nice to be bringing on new clients and it's nice to not have lost anybody. But you're right. I can imagine that initial period was was highly stressful and, you know, having to deal with with those changes. But um, do you think that there's been an overall shift in the way that you've had to work, um, you know, dealing with, um, you know, people working from home? Not only that, but also the sort of expectations from clients um, with the sort of marketing that you've been doing? Hundred percent. And to be fair, I uh, for quite some time was against people working from home. I had that uh, fear that we will not be able to communicate as efficiently as when it's face to face. That we won't be able to collaborate in the same way. We are in a very creative industry, and working together as a team is extremely important. Um, and so when we were forced to work from home, um, you know, we had to make those changes and make it work. And I don't think I would have done that change if it wasn't for COVID. The other uh, side of it is that clients uh, traditionally insisted on meeting us face to face. And so all of my sales meetings were face to face. And that meant either me traveling to their offices uh, which often would take an hour or an hour and a half to get there and the same time to come back, uh, or them coming to our office, which obviously meant that they had to travel all in for a single meeting with a new prospect could burn half a day easily. So what Zoom has able to achieve for us is a massive efficiency with the number of meetings we could have without the traveling time uh, and it, it, in terms of the quality of the meeting, you know, what we can say, how we can say it, and to build a relationship with a prospect is pretty much the same as a face-to-face. I, I can't really see much of a, a, a downside uh, between having a Zoom call and having a face-to-face in terms of the results that we achieve after that conversation. So I think that my reservations were purely my internal fear on one hand, but on the other, I don't think that the industry was ready to work from home and was ready to accept Zoom as a form of communication and COVID forced that. And now what I find is that pretty much 99% of clients or prospects that I speak with are absolutely fine with having conversations over Zoom. There's no objection there whatsoever. No one is judging us for working from home and no one is judging us for not meeting them face to face with a very few exceptions. I have had few times where people insisted on meeting me and that was a deal breaker, but that happens in one in 20, one in 30 cases. Mm. So I think that what COVID has done, it, it has forced a massive change, which otherwise it would have happened anyway, but it was going to take a, a much longer period of time. So maybe within the next five years, because the shift was towards working from home. I think people need more flexibility now than than in the past. Um, well, I think that they've always needed flexibility, but I think that the the workforce realized that they can still do what they're doing um, just as, as efficiently and have a better uh, uh, work-life balance by being at home, if not 100% of the time, some of the time. And we were already going towards that direction, but COVID just, that up for all of us. So since March of last year, we all went working from home. The 
actually my whole team prefers now to work from home to the point where I actually had to um, uh, cancel my lease and actually leave the office. So we, we don't have a physical office to go to anymore. Um, and we have a, a, a virtual address, obviously, as, as a hub. But when we need to meet, we meet in various different locations. Or We're obviously communicating every single day over Microsoft Teams and Zoom, and that works perfectly fine. Um, but we don't need that physical ad- address anymore. We don't need to go to an office space to work. And everyone seems to be happier for it. Um, so I think that that's, I suppose, one positive from COVID is that it forced a lot of us pivot and change in a good way i think there's been definitely a forced sort of technological advancement um adoption of the technologies that were there initially uh, but you know making sure really just sort of forcing them uh, to be used um and as you're right giving people that better work-life balance and and adapting um the way that people do do meetings obviously there isn't anything um that can replace having a meeting face-to-face currently being able to pick up on those non-verbal cues understanding the the small shift in sort of body language especially in a creative industry and I'm sure that once you get past the the sort of perspective stage and you're dealing with a client that a face-to-face will happen but at least then you know that it's worth the time and and the effort to do so um, but it's interesting absolutely mm. absolutely I think that I can have two or three times more meetings now during the the work week than I had before and in fact I have time left do other things as well. So I think generally, you know, meetings, especially initial meetings, to build that initial relationship, it takes time. And uh, not all conversations result in in paid work afterwards. So you're absolutely right. You know, when, when you're burning half a day just to have a conversation, which then doesn't progress to anything else, it's half a day lost in, in you know, for, for, for no return, if you like. Absolutely. So... I think, you know, I'm sure there are many industries that cannot do what we're doing, but we're quite fortunate to be in the industry of, you know, marketing. We're a marketing company and we do a website for estate agents and service providers within the property sector. Um, And for us, um, actually working from home is not a problem. And I think that going forward is definitely something we will continue to do. And I think our clients are, are... more than happy to to work with us on that basis and they don't seem that they are disadvantaged in any way yeah the expectation has definitely changed when it comes to you know what you want to see uh from people that you're working with and and it is a nice change across the board really as you say there are some industries that it doesn't work um and the current uh, sort of fights going on within financial services in london uh, in the city um they're an interesting one to be to be looking at but um you said obviously that um you know before that you were initially very hesitant to towards working from home that it wasn't something that you thought people were capable of doing without having direct oversight and I think that's been a real pivot for people's leadership styles as well having to adapt and grow as as a person uh, understand that people don't need to be micromanaged and you know that they can be left to fill their own day within their own their own needs and so do you think that you've you've progressed as a director as a people manager as as a leader throughout this time i would like to say yes to that but i think it's 
not only down to that, it's also down to your process, internal process. Because my business has been going for 20 years. For 19 years of those 20, we've been based in an office. Our processes were built around working in an office. And so in order for people to be able to work in a home environment and still be um, efficient and productive, you need to provide them with a process to follow so that that actually can be achieved. When you're transitioning from working one way to working in a completely different way, that takes a little bit of time thinking and, and change. And I think that I suppose my business is not a very big business. Uh, you know, we are in 10 people uh, that we need to coordinate between us. I, I think it will be a lot harder for a much bigger business to uh, make those changes and in- implement new processes. With us, it was easier to go from being in the office 100% of the time to being to working from home 100% of the time rather than having some sort of hybrid option in between because the process we've introduced now works for people that are working from home. So if you go to an office scenario, switching back to working in the old way is not going to work, if that makes sense. No, definitely. So mm-hmm. I, I think it were, it partly I had to let go of feeling that I can't trust anyone because I think it's definitely not about trusting them or not trusting them. It's about allowing people to work from home in, in a structured way where they know exactly what they need to do without having to be micromanaged. And that is down to the company changing the way things are being done internally, if you like. Mm. Um, so, I, I yes, I had to accept that change. I had to understand what, uh, what support I needed to provide to everyone and what changes we need to make uh, from a process point of view. And now that I've been through all of this and a year and a half later of, of working like this, I, I feel that it was definitely the right decision. And, I, I, you know, looking back, should I have done it sooner? I probably would say no, because not only I was unready, but the world was unready. Our clients were not ready. And so if I did go, if I did a, a, apply this process and approach, say in 2019, I don't think our clients would have been so happy to work with us by just working on a Zoom call. Mm. Uh, they would still want to come to our office and things like that. So I think it's a combination between everyone changing, just the same as um, I think I can compare it to a weekend. A weekend is a time when you know that people are resting. There is no expectation for people to do work on a Saturday or on a Sunday, in most mm. cases, in our sphere. Um, and that is because everybody knows it's the weekend. And now that everybody knows that because of COVID, a lot of people are working from home, it's acceptable, and, and therefore the pressure to meet you face-to-face, the pressure to have an office is no longer there. So I think it's partially I had to change, of course, and I accept that, but partially is that everyone else has accepted it, so that made it so much easier. 
Yeah, that's an interesting way of looking at it. That uh, you know, the the expectation is there, and the the idea is there that it's more you know acceptable for people to be uh, in a particular place or not, as you say, with the the idea of the weekend. But um, you know, obviously, considering you do work in in the property sphere, working alongside you know estate agents and and developers and you know people that that have done very well over the last sort of 12 months do you see that this is going to continue or do you think that there's going to be a slowdown for people um you know working within within property and that might have a a knock-on effect to you to be fair property is yes there are always trends in property even before covid it's never it's never been the same every month there's there's peaks there's lows there's ups and you know the that's what the property market has always been. So there's nothing new. Marketing is about being consistent with what you do and how you reach your prospects, how you com- communicate, how you build your sales pipeline so that when they're ready, they can convert. So that's one of the things what, or the reasons why um, we have actually done so well during this period is because you can't do marketing one month and then stop the next and then do it again and then stop. It's, yes. it's something that you need to do consistently. Um, and I think that a lot of um, estate agents and, and, and businesses within property have realized that if they want to continue their growth, if they want to continue attracting leads, they have to invest in their digital assets. And although the market is slowing down, it's the ones that have invested in marketing, the ones that already have the right assets and the the right approach to uh, engaging and converting new leads are going to continue to attract business going forward. And the ones that haven't, they may have benefited from the the current market, but they're the ones that are going to crash in the next few months because they wouldn't have any other way of generating the leads. So I think from our point of view, uh, I I can only say that you know, going forward, we are going to grow. And I can see that now from the demand of inquiries that we're getting and what kind of questions people are asking us. They are all realizing that although they've done well over the past few months, that's not going to continue unless they invest in their business, unless they grow their pipeline of prospects. Because within the property sector in particular, it is a very competitive market. There are many estate agents all trying to win the business of the local vendors or landlords. And uh, unless they invest in their processes and their marketing approach, they're not going to win those instructions. So, um, so they need people like us to help them, basically. So for any um, you know, estate agents that are out there, any you know, property people within property that are, that are listening in, what would be your sort of number one piece of advice for those that are coming to realize that a marketing firm is necessary that they do need help um you know to to plan for their their sort of future prospects what would you initially sort of advise that number one element well the number one element is to go back to the drawing board and actually plan your strategy for the next 12 months Uh, a lot of estate agents tend to um do bits and pieces here and there because they over here, oh, I should be doing Facebook or I should be doing SEO or I should be doing email marketing. And they just dive in with without any plan behind them as to why you're doing it, what are you looking to achieve, and without understanding the journey a customer takes. Uh, and so my advice would be just to take a step back 
look at the bigger picture and do a marketing plan for the next 12 months. What are you looking to achieve? Who are you looking to attract? And then, you know, put down how are you going to do that? What channels are you going to use? How much money are you going to invest? How are you going to measure? What what is a what is a success specifically for for you uh, as a as an agency? Some clients want more landlords, and a success is how many new landlords they acquire. Some want more buyers because they have a lot of stock, so success may mean a lot more buyers registering. So success is different things to different companies depending on what needs they have. But planning is something that majority of them don't do when it comes to marketing. And it's absolutely crucial. It's very much like if you're going to build a new house, you're not going to skip the architect. Surely you would go to an architect first, have the plan, and only then go to the builder to build that house. So it's the same sort of thing. So start with the planning, have a clear understanding, and only then progress to doing things and hiring the people to actually help you do those things. Well, that's an interesting one because I asked for, for one the major points. And actually, I think you've just given away a load of free advice there and got down to number two, three, four, and five uh, for what perspective <laughs> people should be doing. So uh, uh, thank you for that. But, um, uh, you know, that is a really interesting point that, that people do need to take a step back and, and look at look to the future. And I think that's something that people need to do across the boards, uh, regardless of your industry, regardless of your business. Um, you know, it, it is always for a leader to take that moment to think, you know, what do we want from the next few months? Let's put a plan together. And even if you don't hit that plan, at least you've then considered the different elements and, uh, and essentially done a, a sort of SWOT analysis. But um, um, for let's say for art division, then what are you seeing the next 12 months looking like? Are you going to be taking on new clients? Are you going to be taking a consolidatory position or are you going to be you know, moving into to new markets and, and deciding to do something something else? A very good, very good question. We are growing our um, web arm of the business, so we have developed uh, a really interesting product which allows us to build websites for estate managing agents and suppliers to the industry. Uh, so, uh, building contractors, uh, anyone within the property, a service provider, basically. Um, and that product allows us to build websites for the fraction of the cost and a fraction of the time, so we can go to market very quickly. But the site is. Uh, with all the marketing bells and whistles they need in order to launch any kinds of campaigns going forward. So this is the the area that we're looking to grow and uh, we are obviously attracting more and more customers uh, using that product and, and are currently developing a lot of extra add-ons uh, that work really well uh, within marketing as well. So that's one area of the business that we're growing. We are looking at uh, adding another vertical to, uh, at the moment, we are only working with uh, businesses within property and predominantly estate managing agents. Uh, we are looking at potentially adding the recruitment um, side of things and, and seeing whether that can go somewhere because it's very similar to the property sector mm. in that they have very similar needs uh, to the property sector. It's just instead of uh, houses, they sell jobs <laughs> yeah. and uh, in terms of marketing and how websites are being structured is very similar. Um, and of course we have our web design, uh, sorry, our marketing arm. So essentially uh, for uh, the, those clients that need help, they need an extended marketing department. Essentially we have a, a team of people that specialize in, in various different disciplines. So Facebook marketing, Google AdWords, SEO, content writing, things like that. 
and we basically take care of their marketing. So that's the area for business that's also uh, growing at the moment. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the next 12 months hopefully will mean that we will uh, grow the number of clients we have. We also um, are growing the team uh, as well. So we, we, we plan to expand uh, the, the people that, that work within the team to, to help with all of that. And uh, hopefully by doing that, we'll be able to help a lot more uh, businesses out there uh, run their campaigns efficiently and attract the leads that they want so that their businesses can grow. Well, Nelly, it all sounds incredibly exciting, um, you know, not only helping people and consolidating current clients, but adding new areas, looking at new industries. Um, you know, that sounds like you've got an awful lot ahead of you. And uh, I wish you sort of all the best in getting those plans uh, to fruition, you know, regardless of what happens worldwide and the, the next challenge that comes around the corner that that maybe knocks everybody back. Let's hope everything like that is put behind us and you can actually go full steam ahead. But I think that was Thank a, you um, you know, a great place to sort of wrap up um, our conversation with such a nice bit of positivity and uh, such a nice outlook for the future. So Nelly, I'd really like to thank you for, for taking the time to come on today. And um, it'd be great to have you back on, uh, you know, end of Q1 and, and see how some of these plans have, have come about. Absolutely. Thank you very much for inviting me. And yeah, I would, I would be happy to join you again. Brilliant. Nelly, thank you ever so much. Goodbye. All right. All the best. That was Nelly Barova, uh, director at Art Division. A great conversation, looking at some of the um, you know plans and processes for people within within property, how they can adapt uh, their marketing um, to a more sort of future perspective. And next up on the show, we have Leaders Council Chairman Lord David Blunkett. Um, he'll be giving his take on some of the political and economic challenges over the last eighteen months and how he sees the future. Uh, he'll be in viewed by Matthew O'Neill. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the, the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak 
uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness. But all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons. Uh, But maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, But also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's 
commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's a had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 Uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, 
I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated 
to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Sh- um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without uh, creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up 
not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who 
responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, uh, a uh, credible opposition nor uh, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm -hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the, uh, the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? 
Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakira needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, uh, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again.
Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you.